Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Working out once a week and eating whatever, whenever, and being in the best shape of your life. Sounds like a dream? It's a dream my guest is living. Joel Green is the creator of the Veep Nutrition System, based on targeting gut communities to affect health and body composition. He's also the author of the groundbreaking book, The Immunity Code, The New Paradigm for Real Health and Radical Anti-Aging. Joel was training intervals in the 1970s, taking MCTs in the late 80s, doing keto in the early 90s and targeting AMPK by 2009. Today, at age 55, he is a 100% natural athlete and works out on average once per week, eating what and when he wants. Joel is also a speaker and consultant for some of the nation's largest employers, including big cities and hospitals. Additionally, he teaches functional medicine practitioners how to help their patients to dramatically slow aging and lose weight by optimizing their gut health, focusing on an immune-centric approach. And today, he will share some of his key insights with us. I'm Ariana Summer, and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically, and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Joel, you've been called an old school biohacker. What was your original motivation to start biohacking when actually nobody was talking about it yet? I was just trying to solve my own problems. The original thing I, I think that probably got me down that road was that I had been doing what at the time, in hindsight, turns out to be uh, time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting in the early 90s uh, when metrics came out. And so I'd read this article by Jeff Everson that said uh, he's just eating one meal a day in the evening. And I'd, I'd also heard that at the time a really famous athlete, Herschel Walker, did that. And I started doing that, taking meal replacements. And it worked really well, like worked fantastically well for about four or five years. I was just ripped to the bone and thought I had everything figured out. And then what happened to me was I, I got into eating uncontrollably uh, right about year four, year five. Like I just had this crazy appetite. And I never had that before. And I didn't, I knew that I had done something based on the way I'd been eating for so many years, but I didn't know what it was. And now we know that uh, the action of leptin in response to starvation is, is a long-term proposition. And I was just really trying to figure out like what I had done and how to hack that. So that is probably like, to my mind, like in terms of biohacking where that started. Mm -hmm. And how that issue that initially got you into hacking your body, how did you mm -hmm. solve that particular issue at the time? Uh, I, it, not to be honest, it took me probably about 14, 15 years to figure it out. Oh, wow. Like, cause I tried, I tried everything I tried. I tr so keep in mind, this is like about 1998, I would say. So I tried what you would call paleo. It was basically 
uh, whole, raw, fresh. Everything's whole, raw, and fresh. And I tried that. And I, I kept having the same thing happen. And then, and then I tried like these uh, kind of like macro diets, strict macro dieting, 40, 30, 30, whatever, 40, 30, 20. And I'm just trying different macro ratios. And then I try, I just tried a bunch of stuff and the same thing kept happening, which is, you know, I get really lean um, and I go, okay, I guess I fixed it. And then I'd get this bounce back. I would get this rebound effect and the rebound effect was basically always the same regardless of the protocol and it was characterized by what what i know today is a basically a, what we would call the weight reduced state it's a distinct physiological state that is the direct mechanistic outcome of when you shrink adipocytes so when you shrink adipocytes there are a number of mechanisms enacted that are genetic mechanical orexigenic they deal with gut hormone the whole bunch of things that happen and i kept getting that same outcome so uh, for me, it was, it all resulted in me um, being really bad. About 2006, I was, I was running a software company and I came into that job about 212 pounds and super, super lean. And then by the time I left, I was 260 pounds, <laughs> super fat. And it was a turning point in my entire life. It, it really changed everything about how I think about what I'm doing for my body. What I realized was that the system that I had been indoctrinated into uh, the very system that Arnold had championed to the masses. It didn't work for me like in real life and it didn't work for Arnold. Like when he was governor, it didn't work. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I really started thinking about what would it take to find something that works under the constraints that we find in real life. And these constraints are numerous, but to, to enumerate them, it would be that we have periods where time is constrained time goes to zero. We have periods where eating is ad libitum and ad libitum eating is the natural inbred genetically wired method of eating that all mammals have. We just to survive, we, we eat whatever. So we have these periods and then we have the post weight reduced state where we have all these genetic mechanisms activating. And so I really started thinking about what well, that's the real problem. How do we solve that problem? How do we solve all these things? And so that, that was for me about 2006. And that's, where a lot of the, the stuff came from for me. Mm. So. Yes. And you just mentioned the adipose tissue. You are actually known for saying that fat loss is an injury. So why is that? And how can we release fat by hacking our immune system? Yeah, so the first thing to understand is that um, we have had a model for fat loss for over 70 years. That's totally incorrect. It's not even based on what is, it's not even based on how fat works. It's not based on the mechanisms. It's not based on anything actually, other than just putting in a bunch of time, a bunch of energy, usually a bunch of drugs, and then getting really lean and going, oh, I figured this out. But in that snapshot, in that window of, oh, I figured this out, what's left out of it is after that for most people, the post weight reduced state. And so to make a long story pretty succinct, <clears throat> It's this, it's that when you take a, an adipocyte, so adipocytes, fat cells, white fat, have these fat droplets inside of them, okay? And it takes up almost all of the cell, it takes up almost the entire cell. So what you have is this ball, and then at, on the surface of the ball, you have the nucleus sitting right next to the cell wall, okay? That, that's very different from most cells. Most cells have the nucleus in the center. So if you think of a Christmas ornament inside of a water balloon, Okay. As long as you kept the ornament in the center, it's, it's fairly protected by the liquid around it, or rather in a cell, 
the nucleus is fairly protected by the cytosol, okay? As soon as you take that nucleus and you move it to the side, what happens is the nucleus could be injured by physical, mechanical forces coming against the cell wall. That is exactly, that's exactly what happens in fat cells. So fat cells, they have their mass taken up by the lipid droplet inside and the nucleus sits to the outside, sits next to the cell wall. So what happens is when we shrink these things, when we shrink fat cells down, okay, they are held in place by filaments, by collagen filaments and bound to an exoskeleton bound to a physical structure. That physical structure is called the extracellular matrix, okay? The extracellular matrix is composed of very specific types of collagen fibers. And the way that things actually work is there's quite a bit of back and forth programming that takes place. And the determinant of what programs get enacted, what proteins get made, what signals get propagated, the determinant is mechanical tensioning. Physical mechanical tensioning is the determinant. Okay. It's called mechanobiology or mechanotransduction. So think of it this way. Like nowadays, when we make skyscrapers, we put them on rollers, and in between those rollers are shock absorbers. Okay. So if there's an earthquake, then the shock absorbers take the shock to protect the building, right? Okay. The way that fat cells work is they have essentially tensioning bolts or shock absorbers in between them and the extracellular matrix. Okay. So here's the fat cell. Here is the tensioning bolt. It's called vinculin. Here's the extracellular matrix. So what happens is when you shrink the fat cell down, you're changing the mechanical forces that are transmitted into the cell. Okay. Those mechanical forces program the cell. They program the cell in a number of ways that are critical to weight regain. Now, what I'm, what I'm just about to dive into here, it's never been talked about ever. And it's how things have always worked throughout the entire history of humankind. It's always been true. We've just been out here. We've never been dealing with it until now. So what, what this conversation is doing here is snapping us into what's true. So what's true is when you shrink that adipocyte, you're injuring the cell in a number of ways, okay? One of the ways you're injuring it is that one of two things has to happen, okay? The, the extracellular matrix or the exoskeleton that surrounds the fat mass, either it has to deform mm -hmm. and shrink and wrap itself back to the fat cell, okay? Or the fat cell has to re okay? There's no middle option. That's what has to happen. Unfortunately, no matter which way you go, you're going to be, you're going to incur some kind of damage for this to happen. Okay. So let's take a look at, let's take a look at the first case where the ECM has to shrink to the fat cell. Okay. So in order for that to happen, this has to go from here to here. The way that happens is with traction fibers. Okay. So what will happen is very specific fibers will essentially attach to the outer cell wall and pull these two together. So think of it this way. Think about, think about trying to pull your house from a single steel cord, okay? You wrap around the house and you pull. You might actually pull the house, but in the process, you're really stressing. You're stressing the entire structure quite a bit to do that. So there's a lot of mechanical force, mechanical tensioning that happens, okay? So 
in that process, what's happening is the interior of the cell, it's getting torqued a lot, tweaked a lot. Things are getting moved around and pushed out of position and all that stuff. So that within the cell causes quite a bit of um, damage. And that damage can be measured. You can note the, the degree of damage by, by the mobilization of immune-related mechanisms. So one of those are heat shock proteins. Go ahead. Yes, quick question. You were just about to delve into it. Pardon me for interrupting. I mm -hmm. wanted to ask how do, does this damage manifest in the rest of the body? Because I'm sure it's a cascading mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this takes us to the post-weight-reduced state, okay? A period of time after fat cells have shrunk and a number of mechanisms are kicking in to compensate for what's happened, okay? So one of the mechanisms that takes place is, remember I said that there's a lot of programming that goes back and forth between the extracellular matrix and the cell, okay? So based on physical forces, mechanical transduction, mechanical forces that are transmitted to the cell can make a number of decisions. One of those decisions has to do with the types of collagen fibers that are produced within the cell that will load up into the extracellular matrix. So in response to different types of mechanical tensioning, different types of, of damage, the cell can produce stiffer collagen fibers. Okay. Now we tend to think collagen is just good. It's just beneficial because it's collagen makes me feel good. Yay, collagen. But collagen fibers can actually be, they, they have a range of things they can do. They can be carcinogenic in nature. So one type of collagen called collagen can be loaded up into the extracellular matrix and it leads to stiffening of the extracellular matrix. Now you see this a lot in obesity. Okay. So what, you know, obesity is an extracellular matrix that is essentially very rigid and the rigidity of the extracellular matrix creates a chronic inflammatory state. That chronic inflammatory state is mediated by immune cells or rather macrophages principally. And the thing to understand about macrophages, so macrophages is an immune cell. Macrophages are your frontline defense of innate immunity. But the really important thing to understand about macrophages is that they are the sort of, they're like the conductor of each tissue that they reside in. So macrophages basically within each specific tissue, whether that's the spleen or the liver or your adipose mass, they get into their, into that tissue and they maintain homeostasis of that tissue. So they have a very important job. It's tissue homeostasis. Okay. So they are the regulators of normalcy for each specific organ. Okay. So what can happen, what we see in the case of obesity is we see these perturbed signal states. What we see is that signals emanating beginning with macrophages work virally to spread into your adipose mass. And then from there, those signals basically spread. So adipose mass uh, works as a giant endocrine organ. And it has a lot of influence. It has a lot of power over uh, the signal state of the body, the inflammatory signal state of the body. And so what you find essentially is that inflamed fat can inflame the whole body in a negative wow. way and can be a cancer promoter, particularly in breast tissue. Okay. The consequences of inflamed fat are not trivial. They are very significant. Now, what we see is something very interesting and curious. Now, and the research on this is uh, there's not a ton of it, but it's quite compelling. And there seems to be uh, mounting over time, uh, a case to be made that 
chronic weight reduction does something very similar to what we see in obesity in terms of the signal state of your fat. And it makes sense. If we take the point of view that, that shrinking fat cells promotes microcellular injuries, it's pretty easy to, to draw the analogy to any tissue, like any tissue that you're repeatedly injuring all the time, doesn't work. It doesn't work the same. Go ahead and injure your shoulder all the time. And quick question with regards to the yeah. injury. So the injury uh, goes two ways, reducing the fat cells too much or reducing them as an injury, but also, of course, expanding them is equally an injury. Do I understand that correctly? Yes, it can be. So what in the case of um, obesity is you see fat cells that are overinflated. Okay. And so the best way to understand it is to think of a steel mesh cage like we see in mixed martial arts. And then think of your face being pressed really hard against the steel mesh. Okay. Yeah. But that's exactly what's happening in obesity. So in obesity, you have the, the cytoskeleton or rather you have the exoskeleton, the extracellular matrix is holding everything in, but then the tissues are pressing up against it really hard. And it's very similar to a steel cage. If you just push any part of your body up against a steel cage, it's going to get inflamed because there is a, sort of a mechanical tension between one tissue pressing against another. So that's what we see in the case of obesity. And so it causes systemic inflammation, basically. It's not just the adipose uh, cells, the adipose mass, that it continues to, um, proc procreate is the wrong word, but to pro uh, proliferate further inflammation in the body. So uh, you also say that one of the fundamental problems is that we never learned how to eat. And for everyone listening, what would be three simple steps to improve our nutrition and diet away from these bad diets that, as you say, just don't work, especially not over extended periods of time? Okay. So the big problem, there's one big problem we have, and it's the modern age. That's the big problem. If tomorrow the zombie apocalypse happens, okay, and there's no more civilization, there's no more thyroid problems, nobody's got a weight problem. Nobody's got an issue with body fat at all. And it's because the probabilities of energy balance are going to be inverted. Okay. So everything we're talking about, all these three points, everything stems from the fact that the probabilities of balancing energy are upside down from what they were historically. Okay. But it's not just inverted energy balance. There's numerous factors brought upon by the environment that we're in. So the number one thing above all, number one is that we are trying to do something that is not possible. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do is overcome ad libitum eating is the default hardwired way of eating for all mammals. And it is tied to survival favors you eating anything and everything after a period of starvation. Okay. You're going to have a much better chance of surviving if you eat everything in sight than if you avoid things after starving, right. just makes sense. Okay. Yeah. A very important idea to, to get into your head about everything we're talking about is, is the idea of semiotics. It's the idea that the words we use frame how we think mm -hmm. and control our brains. So when we substitute different words in, we can think in new possibilities. So let's stop using the words diet. Let's stop using the words fat loss and let's substitute in the word starvation. Okay. Your body does not know the difference. Your body doesn't know the difference, like deprivation of food, doesn't matter what you call it. Okay. The body has a, an answer that's 
thousands of years old for that. It's never changed. Okay. So whenever the body gets deprivation of food by any name, fasting, OMAD, starvation, doesn't matter what you want to call it. It has a response. And that response has been there for a long time. And it's designed to help you survive, not to help you look good. Okay. So that response is called ad libitum eating, meaning post-starvation or post-diet or post-intermittent, whatever, fast, however long you want to do it, the body eventually wants you to eat up and it's tied to survival. It's tied to giving you the highest probability of not dying. So that makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So the number one problem that we have is we've created an ideology based on two lists. The list one is the foods you eat. List two is the foods you avoid. Okay. That's a problem. If you just use your head and think about it, if survival favors you eating anything and everything to survive, then it doesn't have much chance uh, that the idea of the list of foods you avoid, it's not going to survive because you're trying to overcome a survival instinct with willpower. Okay. Nine times out of 10, survival will beat willpower almost always. And that's what you with the population at large, you see these ancient mechanisms overpowering will. Okay. Now there's a lot of people who disagree with that and think, oh, it's just a matter of making smart choices and all this stuff. You haven't done it long enough. Okay. (laughs) That's the answer to that. So we have to allow ad libitum eating. We have to come up with a way where from time to time people can eat whatever, whenever, because they're going to anyway, there's no stopping it. And so we need to mitigate. Sorry. If you let me, I just won't shut up. So it's, Oh no, I I love it. You're a treasure trove of wisdom. But so if I understand correctly, would this go in line with what people call a cheat day, or do we actually need longer periods of time to satiate this survival programming? What we need is we need a skill Mm -hmm. and it's a knowledge-based skill. It is the ability to eat anything at any time and offset the impact of that. Okay. How do we do that? And and in a really practical way. So for people who can't, don't have a lot of time or maybe also not a lot of experience or perseverance, what is the best way to do that for most people to incorporate? Let me give you, let me give you three to five really good examples. Okay. But I'm going to preface it by saying, how do we do that? Is asking, how do you win a fight? Okay. You got to learn how to fight. That's the answer. (laughs) All right. So what I'm speaking to is something new, new. It's not a diet. It's a skill set that you can acquire and master in little bits, little small steps. So let's start with those. Basically in my book, it's called offsetting. I did a a couple chapters to this. And when I start talking about this kind of stuff, some of the pointy heads want to poo it because they they cannot relate to a world where that's not binary. It's all just calories. But what everything I'm about to speak to is scientifically empirically validated to some degree or another. Like we can create, here's the basic idea. You can create small but meaningful differences in the caloric yield, in the absorbability, in the in a number of different factors related to each meal. And while none of these solve the problem, several of them stacked on top of each other create a daily percent difference. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30%. And played out over time, that's a massive difference. Okay, so example one would be what's called preloading. So a preload meal is a meal that you have prior to a bigger meal. And a preload meal is functional in nature. Functional means that um, you're not eating it for the sake of eating it for calories or, or pleasure. You're eating it because it has some functional effect on the next meal. So really good example would be 
with respect to, and very easy to prove, just get a CGM and you can prove this to yourself. That's what I love about this stuff. So easy to do, so easy to prove. So one dimension we can look at is lowering total glucose area under the curve, or rather lowering, spreading out the way your body is using uh, sugar with respect to time. So instead of getting this really fast weight gain spike, we're spreading it out. So one example would be like a, a whey protein shake 30 minutes prior to um, a meal that's higher in carbs with some fat. So for example, you could use a hard boiled egg. Okay. What you're going to see doing that pretty reliably is you're going to see a reduction. You're going to see a reduction in the total glucose load on the body mm-hmm. um, in percentages of 20%, like pretty consistently. Okay. And how does that's that work thing. in the body? What's happening biochemically in the body then? Mm-hmm. What is happening biochemically in the body, uh, the cause mm-hmm. and effect? Yeah, it depends on the specific modality that we're using, but to run through some of them. So whey protein is just very good at sensitizing insulin. So basically it helps insulin do its job better. If you add a little bit of fat to that, you're slowing the emptying of the stomach a little bit. So basically sugar hits the stomach at a different, or is leaving the stomach and hitting the blood at a, at a slower rate. So when we slow the rate up, it helps a lot. It helps spread the uh, the energy out over time. Another method would be to impair enzymes. Mm-hmm. So you could add to that some berry phenol powder, for example, that same preload. You can just keep upping the ante. You could add some berry phenols. Uh, the berry phenols do a number of things. Number one, they help to improve fat oxidation. Mm-hmm. And they also can help impair enzymes like alpha glucosidase, alpha amylase, And there's very good experiments showing that you can offset sucrose sugar with, with berries or berry phenols. And so there's a lot of mechanisms and we just keep adding on top. Another would be if we were going to have, let's say our next meal was a baked potato, just let the baked potato cool down a little bit, add a little bit of butter to it. And so now what we're doing is we're adding, we're changing the type of starch, we're adding a little bit more resistant starch to it. And again, none of these things are a panacea. They're just adding incremental improvements, but I've, I've mentioned five things. I've mentioned whey protein, a little bit of fat, berry phenols, cooling down your starch you're picking up like three, four, 5%. And there's good research on this stuff that shows, for example, there was a study that just came out and it showed that by doing most of the techniques I'm talking about, mm-hmm. that you're getting these reductions in, in total glucose area under the curve on order of 40%. You're getting increases in fat oxidation of 20 and 30%. This stuff works. It's real stuff. And it's and cumulative it's- over a period of time, you're going to have some pretty significant results, I imagine. Yeah, very much so. Now, an easy way to validate this for yourself is do it in the reverse. So you can do it in the positive, which is these are things that are quick and easy to try. You can also do it in the reverse. Just eat some junk food. (laughs) Eat a Snicker bar prior to your next meal. Watch what happens. You'll eat way more. You you won't be able to stop yourself. Uh... Very, very... Meal to meal sequencing is a big deal and it's, it's a new science and it works and it's just knowledge. It's just understanding. And so we're getting out of the, avoid these foods, eat these, we're getting out of that. We're getting into solving a real problem, which is ad libitum eating. Fantastic. And something you also really emphasize is uh, gut health. That's of Mm. course a topic that a lot of people have on their minds. A lot of people have gut problems How do we build the perfect gut? It's an interesting question. It gets to an idea called an enterotype. An enterotype is a specific profile of gut bacteria. While 
there's there, there seem to be some variances that there, there do se- there does seem to be a list of key players that seem to show up pretty repeatedly and so these are species of bacteria that seem to confer a commensal or rather a beneficial advantages on the host so bifidobacteria acromantia mucinilfa fecobacteria prosnitzi species of lactobacillus so there, there does seem to be like a like an all-star roster of bacteria and the number one way that you do that is through substrate so in other words You can think of feeding yourself. That's one way to think of it. But then you can also think of eating a meal where you're not feeding yourself. You're actually feeding the bacteria in your gut. It's a very different way to think, and it's very real. So for example, there's a meal that is in the immunity code that I talk about, just the way to feed the gut. And it involves at lunch, just on the fly, fast food, go to Chipotle. And you can create a meal that very much feeds the gut bacteria by by using beans, cooling them down, by using, by using peppers, by using things that are bifidogenic or food for bifidobacteria, you can actually feed the bacteria in your gut that are commensal. And this is another one of those things that is easy to prove. It's like, like really easy to prove to yourself. You can do it rapidly. There's a number of ways you can test this. Just by taking in different foods, different substrates, you can get noticeable and measurable effects rapidly, like usually within a day to two or three days. And it's something anybody can prove. So you, you can disprove it. If you think I'm full of it, then you can just go do it. If it didn't work for you, okay, I was full of it. But most people doing these things rapidly get to a place of, wow, that really worked. Yes. Really worked. Wow. It's so good. number one way, <laughs> go ahead. I was going to say, number one way is through substrate. That's the number one way that you feed the gut. The number two way of looking at feeding the gut is through essentially timing. So uh, another way to think about it is when you combine the right food at the right time, that you're going to get a better result. And what we find is that in the case of borderline pathologies, let's take night eating syndrome. I, I do great on my diet until after eight. And then I, I just have to have something sweet. I just gotta have something sweet. Very often what's going on is that you have a bacteria that love sweets and they are diurnal in nature. They have a clock just like you do, and they are begging you to feed them. So when you go to bed, they can multiply. Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's what's going on. So you can do this in the reverse. You can um, time the feeding of certain substrates in a positive or a negative way. One of the discoveries that I just stumbled across through, I have a, I have a software for a number of years and we were doing corporate wellness engagements. So I would read the research and in 2009, there was a study I came across that showed how rapidly you could recolonize the gut. I put some protocols in the program to test that. And I had a few thousand people use, we're making, they're making bifidobacteria, which makes a ton of B vitamins, but it's too close to bedtime. So we need to back that off earlier in the day. And so you can begin to combine timing. For example, if you're going to have uh, dark phenol fruits, like blackberries, raspberries, things like that, have them in the morning. And what that does is it helps to spin the phytobacteria up during the day, gives you better energy and doesn't keep you up at night. Mm-hmm. So. Fantastic. And I also know, I know you're not a fan of probiotics. I used to be. I used yeah. to be. And, and just w- what I have seen over time was the probiotic boom hit. And then about four years later, the SIBO boom hit. Right. <laughs> and so there is absolutely a correlation between an explosion of SIBO in the gut and, and probiotic, excess probiotic usage. It doesn't mean that probiotics don't have a place. Um, 
probiotics used the right way can be miraculous, but I really believe the market's evolving where you should work with a practitioner who can strategically use probiotics for different outcomes. And I've seen some wonderful practitioners who really understand how and when to apply certain strains of bacteria and they can get really fantastic outcomes. So, Yes, I believe in that very much. Also, you don't just want to throw everything at your gut, not even knowing what's going on there. I found it very interesting. You were talking about the time to actually feed your the bacteria in your gut. And another aspect of timing and nutrition, you talk about uh, circumceptin versus circadian rhythms. So certain mm -hmm. days of the week have unique nutritional requirements. Mm -hmm. Can you give some specific mm -hmm. examples and tell us why that occurs? Yeah, circa means about, and then septin means seven. So circa septin means about every seven. That's what it means. And there, there was actually, when I was researching the immunity code, the book that I wrote, there, there was actually some older research that talked about seven-day rhythms. And it was actually quite compelling. And it had been forgotten about. And then I started looking more into it. And it turns out that there's newer research that seems to confirm that, that not only do we have a daily rhythm, we seem to have a weekly rhythm, and then we seem to have seasonal. And it really does actually make a lot of sense when you start to look at it. Like when you look at animals in the wild, that there are seasons and, and those seasons affect the body in a number of different ways. And that the body does seem to have a seven day cycle. It really does. A good example is sodium retention. So research on sodium retention has shown that you have a peak day of sodium retention. And the really interesting thing is that it is independent of sodium intake. Huh. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And where you really see this thing getting some steam is in chronoimmunology. So when you look at the doctors who are on the forefront right now, what they are seeing is significantly better results of giving certain treatments on certain days. And what, what this is, so this is the tip of the spear. And what we're seeing is that different types of treatments, heart medications, things like that, blood pressure medications, that if you will time the treatment to the right day of the week, you get like 20, 30% improvement, 20, 30% wow. improved outcome. Where this takes place, something that I've done for a number of years is in my book, uh, I talk about what is called the two-day core pattern, which is a, a foundational way to eat that takes all this stuff into account. And then another layer on top of that is to add for days of the week. So a good example is Monday. Okay. So most people die on a Monday. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. We, get, we write songs <laughs> about how Monday sucks and all this. Stuff. So, <laughs> so the net of Mondays is for most people. Like, ah, no. Yeah. I have to go back to work. Okay. We hate that. So uh, stress and cortisol are higher on Mondays. So that's something we can counter with nutrition if we think about it. What that leads into is, okay, on Mondays, if you, what you hear a lot of is, oh, I, I did my diet and I was perfect. And then I got home and I blew it and I medicated on carbs and wine. Uh, what went wrong is you had a lot of stress. And when the body's under a lot of stress, it wants carbohydrates because it can make serotonin and feel good from carbohydrates. So that's one out. And then another is alcohol. So we can biochemically attack that through timing of nutrition. So one of the ways we can help mitigate stress is through loading up on the phenol fruits. Okay. So the, what happens is when we get in the morning in the AM on a Monday, we get a lot of phenols in the serum. Those phenols have a very protective effect on a, a number of different factors. They also help fat oxidation. Um, and then as the day is going along, we can begin to counter cortisol. We can counter cortisol through things like whey protein, through high dose EPA, fish oil, 
that has a, an opposing effect to it. And by timing the way we're taking carbs in, we can help mitigate cortisol loads throughout the day. And we can help the body spin up the large neutral amino acids, the things that are like your glutathione precursors, your serotonin precursors. It's all in the way we're timing everything. That's all. And we're just timing it to the day of the week. And then we're timing it within that day. And so timing, you know, it matters. <laughs> It does. And in your book, uh, The Immunity Code, you present an immune-centric approach to aging and health and mm -hmm. also how to slow it dramatically in easy yep. and practical steps. I highly recommend the book. Uh, but maybe as a teaser for those in the audience who have not read the book yet but would like to dive in deeper, can you maybe share one or two practical steps that all listeners can start implementing in their life? Two huge ideas. One is oxygenation and hypoxia. Okay. And the other is steering macrophages. Okay. So let's get to the first in, in just some easy practical steps. So in the book, one of the first things we jump on is um, hypoxia. And the reason is this, that quick analogy, if you only had 30 seconds to work out, okay, in a day, would you spend that time doing bicep curls? Or would you spend that time clearing um, hypoxia from your cells if you understood that's a major cancer promoter, which it is, okay? So most people suffer from excess hypoxia, meaning when you look at what's called hypoxia, most of us during sleep are not getting enough air or because as we get older, our, our facial structure starts to collapse, the airway starts to shrink. So every night we're, we're undergoing a, a lack of oxygen or hypoxia and your body has a mechanism that compensates for that. Okay. It's called a hypoxia inducible factor. It has a couple variations, one that's inflammatory, one that's anti-inflammatory. But what can happen is when we have too much hypoxia is that these specialized proteins stabilize inside of our cells. And then what they do is they translocate into the nucleus and they turn on all these cancer promoters. Okay. So as a strategy for that works in the real world, we have to think about, well, if I only had 30 seconds, um, I probably would pick to clear out the thing that might give me cancer. That might make a lot of sense. So like breathing is a really big deal. So a simple, easy way that you can look to fix this. And again, the immunity code is all about the cheat codes for the body. It's all about like simple things that have a massive effect over time. One is just start oxygenating better when you're sleeping. And so I have this thing in the immunity code called the Seattle protocol. It's like a big deal. You can look it up, but long story short, you're just going to add breathe rights to your nose and you don't want to, you want, just want to get a little bit more oxygen coming into the nose. And then a secondary step is you can mouth tape. And then there's a whole number of steps beyond that. And they're all just simple little hacks that um, give you little degrees of better oxygenation while you're sleeping. And that's a huge deal over time, like, like a big deal. Whenever you, wherever we find cancer, we find stabilized hypoxia for the most part. <laughs> so getting you to oxygenate better while you're sleeping, it's going to help you wake up. You're going to have more energy. You're going to um, sleep better and all these things that affects. Okay. So that's a quick little tidbit. The next is what's called steering macrophages. Okay. So learning how to control types of immune cells is probably like one of the biggest skills you could ever acquire in life because they drive the body's underlying inflammatory state. Okay. And a quick sort of simple way to understand that is that in the gut, the largest concentration of, of macrophages in the body is just in just under the gut lining, the lamina propia. Okay. And what can happen is when your gut lining opens up, you get lipopolysaccharide and other things like peptidoglycan that penetrate that layer. And it acts like a virus. It, it triggers macrophages in that layer. Uh, they flip to the sort of inflammatory state and they can spread across the whole body. 
Okay. So understanding how to get macrophages to flip from the inflammatory state into the anti-inflammatory state. Nobody's ever talked about that, but it's probably one of the most critical skills you could ever gain. And it's tissue by tissue. So um, an interesting little hack that we can look at are a couple simple little things. You can look at you can look at N-acetylcysteine, which is a form of cysteine, and you can look at look at it in its uh, ester form, ethyl ester. Okay, and its uh, research has shown that it actually helps to spin up glutathione levels within the cell, and it helps to steer macrophages, helps to flip them from the inflammatory to the anti-inflammatory type in certain tissues. If you combine that with physotin. So physotin is a fairly inexpensive supplement, and it seems to show some promise to helping to flush inflammatory or senescent cells. It shows to flush senescent cells from your fat mass. So those two together, it's a quick, simple little hack that you can do periodically just to keep your body in tune. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, speaking about supplements, I just recently spoke to Professor David Sinclair, the author of Lifespan, and uh, he is a proponent of supplementing with NAD. I know Mm -hmm. you actually say NAD supplementation can accelerate aging. So I'd love to hear your opinion. The main concern, so I'm, I'm also a proponent of supplementing with NAD. It's just, there's a in certain cases, there's an order of operation. So it'd be very easy to take that as, oh, that's the answer. Let me do that. But there, there's some decent evidence that in certain body composition types, principally, let's say like your obese phenotype, that NAD is fuel for inflammatory macrophages. Okay. So when you look at the cell surface receptors of inflammatory macrophages, or you look at what happens during aging, when the body's too inflamed, what happens is that all the NAD is being gobbled up by inflammatory uh, immune cells, okay? So most people probably have no issue with jumping right into supplementing with NAD, it's probably a good thing. But if you're talking about somebody who's in an inflamed state, uh, inflammation or obese state, what what a lot of the newer research is suggesting is to clear inflammation first, Uh is to clear the, is to spin the inflammation down first as a precaution so you're not feeding the inflammatory macrophages. It's important to recognize that we still don't understand 100% of this. Like it's not known 100%. And so erring on the side of caution isn't going to hurt you. That's all. Yes. So if you're, let, let's put it this way, really simply. If you're always really creaky, you're always really sore, always really inflamed. There's other protocols you can look at first to get the inflammation under control and then mm-hmm. add the NAD. It's a precaution. Oh, um, so that's just my take on it. Absolutely. It makes total sense. And again, here we come to timing. The timing for NAD would be after you clear inflammation. And for those listeners who are actually dealing with what you're saying, they're just in a state of chronic inflammation. They're constantly sore, have aches and pains or such. What kind of a protocol would you suggest to them first? So if number one is hypoxia, like number one is getting yourself, getting your hypoxia under control. So getting hypoxia under control is a number of steps, but what you're going to find is that wherever there's hypoxia, there's inflammation. Okay. And it's pretty normal to, to see with aging, what you're seeing is that a number of factors related to moving things around don't work like they used to, like the blood doesn't get around the way it used to the limp doesn't get around the way that it used to. So when things sit, they tend to get inflamed. So number one is clearing hypoxia. So there are a number of simple techniques that you can use to begin to clear hypoxia. One involves treating your body like it's in the washing machine. Okay. So when it's in the washing machine, you're flipping around to all sides. So there's some simple techniques. One would be that you're lying 
face down, like either on a bed or a couch with your arms here. And you're just simply oxygenating, lying face down for a few minutes, three to four minutes. Then next, you're going to turn on one side, you're going to oxygenate. The next, you're going to turn on your back, you're going to oxygenate. And the next, you're going to turn on the other side. And so you're rotating the body through all four quadrants. The way that you'll know that you're a little hypoxic is if when you shift, you find yourself catching up with air and going. So what you're doing is you're clearing hypoxia. There are regions of the body where you have hypoxia, uh, inducible factor one, stabilized within the cytosol. And what you're doing is you're reoxygenating. Okay. So that's your first step with, with clearing inflammation. Next step has to do with the gut and getting the gut working. The next step would be looking at dietary factors, which kind of goes with the gut, but, but other things. So dietary factors to help spin inflammation down. A really big key is your omega-3s. Um, the trick with the omega-3s is you have to take them, generally speaking, with some kind of an antioxidant just to be on the safe side. So when you look at inflammatory pathways, when you look at things like the uh, cyclooxygenase, lipooxygenase pathway, there's no getting around the fact the body needs to make these downstream derivatives from omega-3s. Uh, so these very specialized proteins, protectins, resolvins, they come from icosapentaenoic acid. They also come from DHA, but they come very much the, the shut the door, close the door on inflammation side comes very much from the that side of the equation. And these are very fragile molecules, generally speaking. You can get increased um, increase like within the serum lipid, lipid oxidation. And a little bit of vitamin C or a little bit of red phenols, a little bit of things or antioxidants with them, just a little bit when you take them is probably protective. And so uh, getting enough of that in, in your diet. So uh, ranging of six, six grams worth periodically of acid, that's, that's a real big key. Fantastic. And Joel, there's a question I ask every guest on the show and it relates to their practices. Are there any practices that have been in your life for a while and that really have augmented your experience physically, mm -hmm. mentally, or spiritually that you could share with mm -hmm. us? Yeah, number one for me is sprinting without warm up. So it's something I've been doing for quite a long time. And uh, long story short, survival is the single most powerful force at work to affect any mammal. Okay, mm -hmm. anything that that anything that gives you anything that hits on survival. It's going to affect the greatest number of genes. It's going to, it's just going to always find that survival is the thing. So what you find is that in the inventory of exercises, there's only one that relates to survival and that's the ability to run really fast. Yes. <laughs> so what you'll find is that when you look at uh, mammals and what goes on, the ability to run really fast from a standing start with no warm up confers survival. Mm -hmm. And what you will notice is if you can begin to work this into your life, and what I, what I advise anybody that's listening to this is don't jump into it. Just baby step your way into it. Start by walking around the block, then start by just doing a little jog with no warm up, and just take two, three, four, five, six months to work up to it. But eventually what will happen is you'll be able to just go from a standing start to a sprint, okay? I'm 56, and I can do it right now. So here's the thing to think about. <clears throat> All teenagers and kids can go from zero to a sprint anytime, any day. Most adults would rip up every bone in their, every muscle in their body doing that, okay? So there's something that is different from a bodybuilder body. It's a young body and very different. And the measuring stick is the ability to go from zero to a full sprint. 
I know lots of dudes with tons of muscles and all that stuff. And they've ripped every muscle in their body trying to, because they don't have the young body. Mm-hmm. A young body can do things that an old body can't. And sprinting daily will keep the body young because it confers massive advantages for survival. And we lose that somewhere along the way. So if you can begin to integrate that into your life, nothing will keep your body younger than that. Fantastic. I've said it before, Joel, you're really a treasure trove of knowledge. And for people who want to uh, dive in deeper, I highly recommend to read your book, your latest book, The Immunity Code. Is there anywhere people can reach out to you or where can people find you if they want to learn even more? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Real Joel Green or just go to VeepNutrition.com and we've got the book. We've got a really fantastic course called Immune Centric Fat Loss based on the book and a bunch of other goodies. And so, yeah, come look me up. And- Outstanding. I really feel like we just scratched the very surface here. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I learned a lot of new things as well that I'm going to be <laughs> looking into and I know they're going to enhance my life. Joel, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.